This is the place where the explicit language warning goes, but on this podcast, there is none, but I still have to say it. Otherwise, it could be claimed under the laws of eminent domain. Hello, it's Mike Pesca. This is The Gist, specifically The Saturday Show. It being Saturday, this being a show. And on this show, we play one from the vaults and one from the week, a slight variation on that this week. The common theme with these interviews are naughty boys who just won't go, naughty straw-haired boys who led countries and will not take the hint, Donald Trump clinging to power and still clinging to our consciousness, and Boris Johnson. And we will look back on Boris and Brexit and actually how it relates to Trump. So that interview, which you will hear second in the show, is from 2016. Brexit was announced, was going to happen, and Ed Luce of the Financial Times came by to talk about the connections between Boris, Brexit, and Trump. So that's coming up right after this first interview, which I did not air on the show this week, though I did air an interview with the woman I'll be talking to. She's Jennifer Murchia, who is a frequent, I I would say frequent, has been a guest before. She's an historian of American political rhetoric. Her book is Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. But she wrote about in the Washington Post a common tactic of certain speakers, definitely Trump, called paralipsis, which is the I'm not saying, I'm just saying thing. And I found such a great example of paralipsis from a a show I very much enjoy called Decoding the Gurus. And they were talking about an actual guru, and not an actual guru, kind of a crackpot who's really into um, lab leaks as certainty and the Wuhan virus being, being tied up with monkeypox. And he, this guy named John Campbell, is not saying, he's just saying. It was so good, I wanted to get uh, Professor Murchia's take on it. And so, as followed by the Ed Luce interview, I give you my talk about paralypsis, this one sterling example with Jennifer Murchia. So let's take a moment to do a segment on the show that I just thought of right now, which is (laughs) rhetoric of the day. I stumbled across, I think, a great example of paralipsis, which is I'm not saying I'm just saying, but I'd like your assessment of just, um, you know, on a scale of one to 10 on pretty good versus chef's kiss, how paralyptic the following statement is. I'll set it up. I think what you'll hear is the host of a podcast called Decoding the Gurus playing the speech of a guru. His name is John Campbell, and he's sort of a lab leak. Monkeypox was maybe intentionally foisted upon us type guy. And if you can hear this, I'd just love your reaction to how paralyptic uh, he is being in his speech. You could say it was a bit naughty of them to put that in, really. I'm not saying that, but some people might say they're a bit naughty to put that in. Some of you may prefer your senior medical advisors not to have a potential, no no one's saying it's a conflict of interest, of course, but a potential apparent conflict of interest as a cynical person might view it. Some of you may prefer that. So it's a pity that very senior people sometimes appear to have a potential 
conflict of interest. Um, no one's saying that would result in them promoting a particular drug, of course not. Uh, but um, it's an apparent conflict of interest. You can decide. You don't need me to tell you what to think, do you? It's a huge amounts of money. And yet these people are making um, decisions about the health of the entire population. Again, no one's saying that there's, there's any um, ill practice here. But some of you might think it doesn't look good. Some of you might even suspect it does affect uh, does affect decision making. That's not for me to say. What do you think? <laughs> wow, uh, definitely chef's kiss. Um, I mean, I I lost track of how many paralipses there were. Um, I was at three or four or five, and then I was like, wait, and it just kept going on and on and on. Um, yeah, I mean, so this is why. So first of all, it's rewarding because it's funny. Second of all, it allows you to avoid accountability. You can't be sued if you said, I didn't say that, but somebody might say. Um, and it's a rhetorical strategy that people have been using since ancient Greece, right? This is a, a Greek word. Um, and it's always been used ironically to say two things at once. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it's amazing to see here um, that example so many times in such a short yeah. period of time. Um, right, that's like the Simone Biles <laughs> of paralipsis. We didn't think that you could do that many flips. <laughs> no. So in the audience's mind, are they, hmm, are they taking it like uh, an ignorant fan of professional wrestling that they're just getting duped or are they kind of in on the uh the kayfabe are they in on what's going on and they're delighting in the fact that he's dancing around this yeah i think they're probably in on it um yeah. i mean because if you think about it like irony paralypsis humor like they all work in the same way like you can't understand a language unless you understand it deeply enough to understand you know the irony and the humor, right? Jokes are the last mm. thing that you get. So paralipsis is funny. Like yeah. it's meant to tickle and delight the audience in a well, way. Well, it certainly, I mean, it does me every time I hear it, right? It cracks me up yeah. every time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is. It's meant to delight, but it's it's also a very savvy move, right? So it allows you to believe that you understand the backstage, you know, the real view of right. what the person is trying to say like you're really in on it like you really right. that's know. why i use the wrestling example yeah. of someone who watches the real housewives and like i know it's all edited for tv but she also the the viewer will also say but my god that ramona is a wild woman or whatever yeah <laughs> i think it's even more intense than that and maybe that's just because i'm a rhetoric person but because it's happening in your head right like yes. it's not like this visual performance or anything like it's the thing where your brain understands two things at once and chooses which one, you know, is the right understanding to have. And so I think that it's actually more powerful than the Real Housewives. <laughs> Interesting. And what about, is it a variation on paralipsis or some other rhetorical technique where he started going on about, there was the, I'm not saying that it's the appearance of a perception of a conflict of interest, <laughs> many, many layers away from the actual statement of uh, his belief. Yeah, that's probably a good way to guarantee that you don't get sued for slander or libel or whatever, defamation, whatever yeah. thing applies. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, yeah, I didn't say it. it. I said that it could be understood as an appearance of a thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. there are many layers deep um, from accountability. Mm -hmm. What are, and what are some Trump paralipses? Oh, 
So many. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, the probably the most famous one is the one where um, he was in Louisville at a rally and he said he got mad because there were so many protesters and um, he got his crowd to beat the crap out of them as they escorted them out. And the protesters sued and he, um, he, he, you know, used the transcript to say, well, I didn't say don't hurt. I said, don't hurt them. I, I got to say don't hurt them because if I say hurt them, then these people say I'm the worst person in the world. So don't hurt them. Used to be a time where people would get hurt for doing stuff like this. But I said, don't hurt. Right. So there's that one. And then they decided the case. They, at first they said there was probable cause that he did incite violence. And then they said, oh, no, he didn't because he said don't hurt them. That's what the transcript says. Um, the other one that I think is such a great example is um, with Ted Cruz's dad um, being, you know, some kind of accomplice to JFK, which was a tabloid conspiracy that one guy from InfoWars circulated, right? But Trump used it to his advantage. Um, every time he was interviewed about it, it was very similar to what you played. Um, he would say, you know, I didn't believe that, but I said, let the people decide. Let them read it for themselves. You know, I'm not saying he did it. I'm saying, let them read it. Let No, I didn't believe that. <laughs> but I said, I did say, let them read it. Um, you know, where he used paralypsis to get away with the ad hominem attack and the conspiracy theory. So it all works together for him. Dr. Jennifer Murcia is a historian or an historian of American political rhetoric at Texas A&M. Her latest book, excellent book, Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. She's tried to educate the committee on her findings about the demagoguery of our former president. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. We're about to be told if Britain bracks the Brexit or rebruts those bracking Britain Brexiting the EU. I'll stop now, but I do have to note that as scary as the idea of the Brexit is, it must be especially horrible to those with the very rare B to BR speech impediment. It's called a lisp. Right now, joining me is Financial Times chief U.S. commentator and columnist, and he's author of the book, Time to Start Thinking, America and the Specter of Decline. Edward Luce. Hello, Ed. Hi, Mike. Good to be with you. Thanks for coming on. And I should note to our American audience, uh, the name of the book is Time to Start Thinking America in the Age of Dissent. But we haven't quite decided if we're descending or not, have we? No, we, we definitely haven't. It's an open question. And I prefer the specter of decline for that reason. But the other thing about the specter of decline is the specter itself is something that can be played upon and I think is being played upon both in the Trump phenomenon and in Britain. The idea that America or Britain is declining, is being threatened with decline and what to do about that. Yeah, that's that's another reason why I'm hesitant to sort of. Well, apart from my accent in this country, if you talk declinism, there's an assumption not that you're you're being detached or an objective, but that you're actually wishing um, uh, in some sort of sneering British way um, for American decline, which is very, very far from the truth. Um, I'm pro-American and um, um, understand full well the implications for all of us across the West, to use that you know term in its general sense, 
of what would happen if there's a vast vacuum created by America's retreat. So I, I don't wish for America's decline, but also I hesitate because there are a lot of right-wing cultural pessimists who yeah. talk about decline, and they mean something totally different to what I'm talking about. They're talking about morals and you know um, social ties and um, often have a... Um, a Christian agenda, and that's very much different subject matter to the one I'm addressing. Yeah, that's they're they're a little bit of the hell in a handbasket crowd, the cranky old man crowd, but also a little bit of the uh, rapture crowd. Yeah, and you know, sort of Patrick Buchanan keeps cropping them up amongst all these types, and I really don't want to be in any way um, uh, intellectually second, third cousin once removed from Patrick Buchanan. <laughs> what have you learned? about your country and your countrymen during the Brexit debate? I have learned a number of things. The first is that, you know, we really are in a, in a post-serious politics nowadays. I mean, it, it manifests itself in different ways. You know, Italy maybe came to that realization with Berlusconi and Beppe Grillo a long time before we have in Britain and America evidence sort of empirical findings, serious policy papers, all that kind of stuff, which used to have some weight. They might not have swayed elections, but they sort of lurked beneath the surface of elections as being serious stuff that people in the media would sift through, some very earnest voters might sift through, don't have any weight whatsoever anymore. And evidence seems to be really almost immaterial when it's set against feelings and perceptions. And that, and that to me is a rather scary realization. And it's true, I think, or it certainly has been true in the Republican primary on this side of the Atlantic, but it's true of the Brexit debate as a whole. The Leave campaign, you know, led by essentially an entertainer, Boris Johnson, an entertainer who somehow became mayor of London, who's up against um, another slightly more sober entertainer, David Cameron, but who again has no real serious background. He just became prime minister. And they are a year apart from each other at Eton College, the poshest, snobbiest school in Britain, and therefore were a year apart each o- of each other at Oxford. And it's very personal, and both of them want the job that Cameron is in. And they are playing very careless poker with the deep-set national interests of the country that we're talking about, Britain. And I find that very unserious, but with potentially devastatingly serious consequences. It's worrying. Of course, it's happening here too. Do you think that Boris Johnson, though, is someone who uses humor to advance politics? I mean, Trump is an entertainer, whereas Johnson, maybe we could charitably describe him as colorful. Do you think that he is actually buying the his own arguments that he's putting forth for the Brexit, that he thinks Britain will be better separated from the EU? I have to be a little bit careful here because I know Boris and I know his family quite well. And, you know, I don't want to be personally too critical of him because one of his brothers in particular is a very close friend. Um, uh, That having been said, I have absolutely zero doubt that he does not believe it's in Britain's interests to leave the European Union. So why, you might ask, (laughs) is he leading the campaign? for Britain to leave the European Union. And uh, I think there's only really, again, being careful by process of deduction, one possible motive, and that is he wants to be prime minister. And the scenario in which he becomes prime minister is David Cameron is defeated in his Remain campaign, is therefore toppled. And the natural person to turn to is the 
the man who led the Leave campaign, namely Boris. That's the scenario under which Boris becomes prime minister. And I hate to say it, but I wouldn't say it unless I thought it was true. And other people who know Boris better than I have been saying it too, um, which is that his personal ambition is far greater than his sense of principle or, or indeed his care for the country that he wants to lead. The calamity that would be, perhaps that's overstating it, but they would certainly, I haven't read any. Oh, I don't think so. I think calamity is a good word. Okay, so let's say with somewhere between calamity or the overwhelmingly agreed upon by experts setback that the Brexit would represent. With the equivalent in America with Trump, we could lay out the case why his trade policies might even hurt the people that they're designed to help. But Perhaps charitably, we say, you know, they're downwardly mobile, former blue collar workers who once had it good and don't and they're grasping for something. And maybe we feel some empathy for them. Is this the same with you and uh, your countrymen, the uh, the Brits who want the Brexit? You understand that times are so tough for them that a uh, Svengali type, you know, maybe has some appeal? Yes, I do think there is some uncanny parallels um, between the kinds of people who are voting for Brexit, their their similarities with the kinds of people who've been voting for Trump, and also the sort of magical um, hope they invest in a very simple and uh, I would say simplistic solution to their troubles. Now, clearly, you know, they are not the beneficiaries um, in their own eyes and perhaps objectively of globalization in the way most of the rest of their societies are. They haven't been doing well. Their incomes have been stagnant or falling. They tend not to live in the grand multicultural metropolises like London and New York and LA and, you know, Manchester, Edinburgh uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. They tend, therefore, to be less acquainted with people who aren't like them and more fearful of them. And I think, you know, it's no coincidence you will find anti-immigrant and pro Brexit sentiment rises the further away you get from mixed communities in Britain. And so there are parallels there with the Trump phenomenon. Trump, you know, has a magic, we will build a wall with Mexico that sort of symbolizes what he's about and what his supporters would like to see. They would like to bring the curtain down on this harsh, open, confusing, multicultural world that they haven't really benefited from in their eyes, and I think probably objectively they haven't either. And leaving the EU performs the same function for the Brexit voters as the war with Mexico does for Trump's. Do the Brits who support the Brexit see that their leaders who support it are acting Trumpian? I'm not sure that they do. I'm not sure the ones who support Brexit see it that way or would necessarily see Trump in the same negative light that people who read the Financial Times do or watch the BBC News. There's a real sense of bubble. You know, the media in London, do they actually have a clue what's going on in the minds of people living in the the smaller post-industrial cities in the north or in some of the small towns in the south? Do they have a clue what these people think? You know, I hear in conversations over here in D.C. and, and outside of D.C., people say they don't know one Trump voter in their own personal life. I hear exactly the same. I was in Britain last week for five days. I hear exactly the same conversations in London. So I don't know anybody who's going to vote for Brexit. More than half of voters, according to some polls, do. So that the sense of there being a bubble and of us not really knowing what people who 
perceive themselves to be outside the bubble think is a very strong new thing that I don't think you'd have heard 10, 15 years ago. One phenomenon that explains Trump's popularity or relative popularity in the, in the United States is that even economic news, even empirical economic data is seen through a partisan lens. So in 2014, for instance, 24% of Americans thought the American economy had gotten better, which it had. But if you break down Democrat and Republicans, 43% of Democrats thought it was improving, only 8% thought it was improving on the Republican side is something now we're told this is a really American phenomenon for a number of reasons, um, not least of which is gerrymandering, not present in Britain. So in Britain, is there this partisanship? Does that explain any of what's going on with the uh, people not seeing economics as improving? Or is it the case that economics are really much worse in Britain? It depends. It's a really interesting um, comparison to make because Britain, Britain's performed least badly of the European economies. And, you know, and this is another complexity to the whole Brexit debate because it's really, really good that Britain wasn't part of the Eurozone, isn't part of the Eurozone. And that's one of the reasons it's bounced back quicker um, than the rest of Europe. It's, it, it trails behind the United States in terms of recovery from the 08 recession, but it's had a very different kind of recovery. So in America, you've seen a dramatic drop of the labor force participation rate, particularly for men. The fewer and fewer men of prime age actually work in America. Oddly enough, in Britain, the participation rate has gone up um, since the recession. So more people are working, but they're working for way lower wages. They're getting less than, you know, they, they would have been paid before the recession. So there are differences in the kind of economic picture between the two countries. There are also differences in the media market. It's a lot more difficult to break off into your own sort of electronic echo chambers or talk radio echo chambers in Britain. It is still a single sort of market for media in a way America isn't, partly because it's smaller. So I think what's happened is you just get a lot of people who don't consume any media whatsoever. That's the real divide. And you've got plenty of those in this country too, of who just don't bother whether it's left-wing media, right-wing, tabloid, whatever it is, they've just opted out. They pay no attention. They think everybody's lying to them. That's certainly an echo with what you, you find in America. So one theme of everything we've been talking about is stability. We assume there would be some form, some version of stability in our politics in the West, and that has proven to be untrue. Is this just an inevitability of how the world is going, how the economy is going? You know, how should we grapple with this idea that that politics, as we knew them or thought we knew them, seems to be disintegrating before us? Well, it's sort of trade-off between stability and, I suppose, referendum politics. Is There is an objective problem there that, you know, Trump support doesn't come from nowhere. Brexit support doesn't come from nowhere. The fact that we drastic, a lot of us drastically disagree with the remedies and believe they're a cure worse than the disease is one thing. But, you know, we shouldn't discredit the fact that there is a lot of very understandable insecurity, frustration, and resentment out there that the elites who are supposed to be leading the ships of state have basically made off with all the benefits from this ship. And there's, sorry to stretch a metaphor here, but that the people locked down in the hold of the Titanic seem to have been forgotten. I think a referendum or a presidential election, which is becoming a bit like a referendum, the question being, is Trump 
qualified to be president. So it's got a little bit of a, a referendum quality and this, this coming November. It becomes a very, very dangerous lightning rod for these kinds of sentiments from people who feel they've been ignored, who feel that they are the um, object of polite society's derision. Political correctness protects every other group, protects all the immigrant groups, protects all the, you know, um, the minority groups you can think of, sexual, religious, and racial, except for these poor white blue-collar workers who are sort of laughed at. They don't speak English very well. They're not very educated. They're not adapting to the new world. Um, and we don't, we don't shield them with our rules of political correctness um, from, from mockery and from derision. And so I understand some of this. Uh, even though I'm not from that background, I, I really understand that if you are living in a society that claims to be a meritocracy and you're not doing well, then that means you're at fault. And if that means you're at fault, then you're, you're open season for somebody to laugh at, for other people to laugh at. Um, and so, you know, we're not going to get stability if this carries on. We're going to get more and more moments like, like this Brexit referendum um, and indeed the rise of Trump where we think, oh, my God, uh, the things that we've taken for granted since before we were born and that our parents took for granted, namely stable democracy, are they now in balance? Are they now in question? Might, might next time Brexit happen? Might next time Trump get elected? And you know, until we do something about this underlying problem, the economic inclusion of all of society or of much of it as, as, as is reasonable um, to aim for, then I think, then I think the health and stability of our systems of government is going to be in question. I don't think 2016 is a blip year. I think this is the beginning of, uh, or the early stages at any rate, of a long challenge for democracy in the West. Edward Luce is the chief U.S. commentator and columnist for the Financial Times. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. And that's it for today's show. Corey Warrow was the assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. I think I'll retain them. They will still be in those positions. And I shall talk to you on Monday. <laughs>